cup at a time. A thin stream. It's supposed uh -huh. to be a thin stream. Blend it really uh -huh. well. Or you'll burn... David, that's not right. Okay, well, that's because I'm ladling and stirring at the same time, and you're just standing there. Now is not the time to lose focus, darling. This was your idea. You're the one who allegedly made the enchiladas. Yes, so try to keep up. Okay, next. Now's the time to sprinkle in the chili pepper flakes. We've already done that. What number are we on? Oh my god, is this not your mother's recipe? Yes, and now I'm passing it on to you. So try to keep up. Um, oh, next step is to fold in the cheese. What does that mean? What does fold in the cheese mean? You fold it in. I, I understand that, but how, how do you fold it? Do you fold it in half like a piece of paper and drop it in the pot, or what do you do? Dude, I cannot show you everything. Okay, well, can you show me one thing? You just, here's what you do. You just fold it in. Okay, I don't know how to fold broken cheese like that. And I don't know how to be any clearer. You take that thing that's in your hand, uh -huh. and you. If you say fold in one more time. It says fold it in. This is your recipe. You fold in the cheese then. Don't you dare. You fold it in. David! Oh good, now I see bubbles. David, what does burning smell like? Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. Welcome back, everyone. Part two of the Revolutionary Poets Book Club. And we are talking about the second half of the book, Having and Being Had by Eula Biss. We've got myself, Bob Maisler, uh, podcaster extraordinaire Dave Maisler Peachtree, um, future Dr. Mike Bishop, and last but not least, master of the green room, poet himself, Dan Cantrick. So just a quick rehash, last conversation we touched on consumption and work, talked a lot about class, um, talked a lot about how do we live ethical lives in capitalism um, got to a point of sort of uh, I remember Mike talking about taking a veganism perspective harm reduction you know you, you can't help but you know kill and living in this world or like contribute to systems of violence but you can reduce your sort of you can be conscious of that and intentional within those systems I like that and I think we can explore those again. This week, we have the last two sections, um, investment and accounting. So um, there's a lot to get, get after here. Um, I think I'll just start us sort of in the investment section in the broad category. Uh, she talks a lot about art and what it means to produce art um in capitalism who gets to do it like what does it take um touching on like virginia wolf having privilege to have a room without a view or a sorry a room of her own um and like yeah what what work does art do in the world so uh lads you can take that any which direction um 
you can pivot pivot hard left off that if you want. Um, but I'll I'll open it up with that. Like how how did that resonate with you? We have some artists here. Um and yeah, anything in those sections that really piqued your interest. Yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking about this struggle that I mean, I think all of us, all four of us are, you know, artists in some form or fashion. But we don't make a like at one point she's examining like the uh gift economy in relate in relation to art and that like how most of the poets she knows give their work away and their day jobs are like teachers or bartenders. And this goes to like her like further examination of what we value or how we define value in this uh in this world, in this economy, in this in this country. Um and I just think it's like like something that I was really uh what's the word? I was agitated, I was fired up, I was like pretty uh something that like provoked me a lot was the fact that the, there's not like a value to like the poetry I write in this in this society that then allows me to like have shelter just because I write poetry. But there's like cryptocurrency, which is a completely like made up thing that it definitely exists because it's quite bad for the environment. Um, Not to mention NFTs. NFTs. There you go. Like all these alternate currencies that have value. And there are these like things that are a hard for me to fathom and wrap my head around and B um, they don't give me any sort of like emotional uh, or psychological response the way something like a painting does or poetry or a great novel or something. And it's just, it, it was a sense. I just like maddened by it, I guess, because it's like how far, how far we're going away from these artistic practices for just like things that are made up imaginary or like not tangible or I don't know. It seems, it seems like the, the, it also seems like a factor of the rich using their money to create more money out of nothing as a way to like maintain power and control. And I guess in that way, like the art we do, like poetry and stuff like that is a subversive way to fight back against this uh, system. But this is, this is what was coming to my mind when you say, when you were talking about art, Bob, and I was thinking about her conversations on value and um, incomes and how we justify like whether something has value to then contribute to income. Uh, versus the earned income, which she describes as like vanishing or not existing anymore. There, there was that one artist. I'm, I'm going to jump in and think about, I think it might've been the last section. It wasn't necessarily investment, but um, you talked about the artist who sort of documented her like interaction with money using art um, and like the amount of time it took to, I think 
like for every dollar that her house cost, she like wrote the number out and like made a piece of artwork out of it. And then when she sold that piece of artwork, she like made artwork out of the like transaction with the person. And like, so her art became like a representation of investment or sorry, uh, like making money. Um, and I found that to be like the most boring artwork I could imagine. Uh, I know it's like the concept is really clever, like the concept in and of itself, but I feel like, and I mean, art can be so many different things, but I just remember being like, Oh man, I feel like, I think it's cool that she's like really like connected to like the number in some way of the amount that she paid for her house. But I would hate to have that piece of artwork hanging. It's like as bad as an NFT for me. Um, I don't know. I, that was like the one when I think about art in this book, that's like one of the big things that came up and I can't even remember her name. So maybe one of you guys can help me with the name of the, the woman. I know that there's not a lot to build off that, but I, th I think that, you know, as we are talking about this book, like it's these little short, like poems almost on capitalism. I feel like it's kind of nice to be able to jump all over the place. Um, and just not necessarily have to respond because sometimes it's like, yeah, you can just like take it for what it is anyhow. But I, I really thought that that art was just despicable. Well, I got a, a weird little art rabbit hole that I could take us down. Um, I got a lot of stuff to say about the investment section. So we'll come back to that at some point, but <clears throat> I loved this start of part four. Um, where she's like getting into a cab and um, this cab driver asks her, uh, what do you think of art painted by elephants? And th this reminded me of, um, I don't know. I just had this like kind of pseudo obsession with abstract art and like the idea of a gallery where you have art that's painted by children, art that's painted by elephants and monkeys, art that's painted by like world renowned masters, and then art that's painted by artificial intelligence. And like, you just don't label any of it. And like, what kind of experience would it be like to go in there and try to pick these things apart or, you know, cause with abstract art, there's often not a lot of ways to tell. Um, and I think she, she mentions, uh, she says, if you're asking if I think it could be beautiful, I tell him, then I think it could, even if the elephant had no intention of making something beautiful. But if you're asking if abstract art isn't really art because it could be made by animals or children, then that's another question. I just felt like that was a, it's a provocative idea to think about, especially the artificial intelligence one, right? Because when you can program a computer to make paintings, then we're getting into the realm of almost like NFTs of artificial intelligence. And yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, there's there are uh, natural language programs that write poetry. Um, Google has a AI program that writes novels and screenplays and 
you feed these things enough text and then prompt them to create something. And sometimes you get quite hilarious results. But uh, maybe similar to abstract art uh, in the arena of surrealist poetry, maybe a machine could eventually spit something out that we couldn't tell was written by a machine. Food for thought. I think I can go off that one. Yeah, I, I love that because it like, and uh, what all three of you are saying is like, what is art and who gets to define it, I guess, is an interesting question um, that Dan sort of hit on. Like, is it the like elite class who say, oh yeah, this is worth a hundred million dollars. So that that's art. Um, or yeah, like when machines make things that are art, that's indistinguishable from artists who gets to define that. So I'll take us to a a little bit different direction. This is coming also in that last section. Um, the idea of like art to change the world, um, art to like, that like Bertolt Brecht quote of like art is a hammer to change the world. And this is from a section called spies. And it's uh, Eula's brother is saying that she should read this book, The Captive Mind by uh, Czesław Milos, a Polish uh, poet who lived during the Nazi occupation. And Milos was a revolutionary. And he he says uh, this thing called Ketman, which is like, uh, I guess, a method of revolution. Um, So I'll read this part. Uh, Ketman, my brother says, is the word Milos uses for living undercover in secret opposition to the regime that wrote his paycheck. He borrowed the concept from Islamic theology, which allowed true believers to conceal their fate when surrounded by unbelievers. For Milos, Ketman was something like the art of passing. To say something is white when one thing is black, he wrote. To smile inwardly when one is outwardly solemn. To hate when one manifests love, to know when one pretends not to know, and thus to play one's adversary for a fool, even as he is playing you for one. That's the game of Ketman. And I, um, so I think this can happen with art. I think art can, um, you know, like you can disguise subversive ideas within art. Um, but I, I kept on going back and forth around this Ketman idea of like, um, like, I think it's a very fine line of like being a part of the system and being revolutionary within it. I think it's really hard to play that. And, um, like when you're playing that game, you have to also be oppressive to others. Like there's going to be times where you have to like engage in a misogynistic joke or laugh at it when someone else is otherwise you'll blow your cover or maybe you'll have to do like even worse things like beat someone up or you know kill someone or i don't know um but yeah i thought that was an idea super interesting um but i think that also takes us a little bit on on a tangent so like dave's saying he had this books all over the place so we can just seed ideas and see where they go I think I could land that plane. Um, you talked about how uh, we're kind of like always, always complicit, right? The system makes us do things that we don't want to do. This this will jump us back into the be- very beginning of section three, uh, where she's talking about 
Melville's Bartleby, Bartleby the Scrivener. Um, I would prefer not to, is kind of his, his famous response to everything that he's asked to do. And um, much like Bartleby, Eula would prefer not to invest in the stock market. She would prefer not to work well past the usual retirement age. Um, and she's talking to a financial advisor that her, her university sends to check in with everyone annually. Uh, he discovers that she hasn't invested her savings in the stock market. And um, he asks her, this is page 166, when do you want to retire? As soon as possible, I say. Most of the professors he advises plan to keep working well past the usual retirement age, he tells me. Yes, I know those professors. I work with them, or for them. I don't explain the difference between my job and theirs. The higher course load, the lower pay, the basement office, the glass ceiling. I just say, I'm not like them. He tells her she's going to need to invest aggressively to kind of make up for lost time and to meet her retirement goals. And further down, she says, I wonder silently if I might actually be buying other people's futures. And then she goes on to talk about this in a couple of sections in the investment about sin stocks and uh, the, the cost of diversification. If you want stocks that are environmentally friendly, they might treat their employees like shit. Or if you want to avoid guns and tobacco and gambling, uh, you know, you might end up with companies that cause environmental damage. So almost like no matter what you do in the stock market, your hands are dirty and your retirement is built on an extractive industry that is, you know, making profit, generating capital off of other people's labor. And it's almost inescapable. Every pension fund, every single person in this country that has a 401k, it's all invested. And most of it is not invested in ESG funds, which are funds rated for positive environmental, social, and governance characteristics. You know, just a, a broad index fund is going to have everything. It's going to have oil. It's going to have guns. It's going to have mining. Um, yeah, so... This, this notion of being able to buy back our time from the capitalist system that demands that we pour in 40 years of our lives uh, in order to ever get free from it, we have to do it on somebody else's back. Dang. I like, I like that comment a lot, Mike. And it strikes a chord with me. You know, I'm a state employee being a teacher and I feel like my like any state employee in the state of colorado is part of this thing called para um you know i don't know exactly what it stands for but retirement account um and that is managed by like you know a group of people that are investing that money in other people's futures and that is definitely a sense of theft that feels real to me and yeah i was just like to lead it back towards more towards investment and away from accounting and art. Um, and it's okay if you have more comments on that, Dan, cause I skip stack again, but I, I guess like the idea of investment that like 
I don't know if it was Biss or if it was Graber, one of them um, talked about how like investment is basically using money to make more money. Right. And that's like at the heart of what we're doing and where a lot of the issues with this like phantom economics come in where we are. <clears throat> yeah. Just like it's the, it is the essence of how the rich get richer. Right. And whether it's, buying like things like these nfts or cryptocurrency which you know we're we know like with the trend of watching like investment over time we know that like bitcoin will continue to go up right um anything that is like a limited resource which you know all, i believe at this point all the bitcoins have been mined long since mined so that it's now a limited resource and that's going to continue to go up as long as people believe in it. Right. And that like goes back to the art, like what makes art valuable. It's like, well, if you believe that this was painted by Picasso and just like calling it a Picasso, like gives it credibility. Right. If you are like into the idea that like Wayne Gretzky once owned a Honus Wagner baseball card, then you're like, wow, that was owned by Wayne Gretzky at one point, you know? And like that baseball card is now like valued at like 2.4 million or something like that. And these like, I don't know, I, I've probably said this at some point on the podcast, but like, I remember doing a lesson where we were just talking about valuable things and in my classroom. And I just remember like one of the kids in my classroom was like, I don't understand why this has value. Like, why would anyone pay like $7 million for a stamp because it has like an upside down plane on it? Like, I can't understand that. I'm like, well, it's valuable. There's only like a certain amount of these and like trying to justify that. Um, yeah. And it's just like, but like nobody can buy into that value except the Uber rich. And just like, even though like the little things like buying into a para account, right. Is like the idea that you have to be a teacher or a state employee for X number of years. And you're buying into that account over time. And then in the end, you're going to end up with, I don't know, retirement, which is like such a, such a gift, but it's also like nobody ever thinks to analyze what, where that comes from and what that, what, what that means, I guess. But anyway, yeah, I like that. It struck a chord with me, like everything you said. She, um, there's like this other thing that happens to her in that moment too, where she's thinking about, um, like the cost of her investment and she has to lie to her accountant or the person who's like managing her account. And she says she wants the no risk option because she's conservative with money. When in actuality, she is trying to like, um, actively avoid these, you know, these accounts that are like, uh, profiting from other people's labor but she feels too, um, like, uh, I don't know, like sh shy or like embarrassed to tell the financial advisor this outright. Right. Cause this like feeling of like, probably that you, when you go to a financial advisor, the whole point is to make more money, no matter what the cost. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're there to like get you that and make that happen. And it just gets, it's like how, like messed up this whole system is this whole thing is like she can't she doesn't even feel comfortable sharing her true feelings about the economic system with this person like this is how, what 
this is like how capitalism, you know, like just works to control and um, infiltrate like all these interactions, these seemingly like subtle interactions, even with somebody that you don't have a relationship with. Like I went, I went out to um, eat the other night for somebody's birthday and I met somebody that works as some sort of software engineer for some uh, crypto operation and everybody at the table started talking about their like uh crypto portfolios and i was like trying to i i had this thing where i i like had in my head i have to make a good first impression and i have to i have to like try to become friends with this person who works in this field because he's like good friends with my other friend and i want to try to connect with them um but i was so resistant to the conversation and wanting nothing to do with it but I didn't, I didn't challenge it and I didn't, I couldn't really think about how I wanted to and what I wanted to say. And as I'm thinking about it now, I was like, Oh, I could have, I could have brought up this book. I could have been like, Hey, I'm reading this book with my, with my friends. It would have been a great talking point. Um, but they were these people for these people, it was like such a present, like daily thing. And the, what I mean by like the, the cryptos and the investing and following it and tracking it. It's on your phone. They all pulled it up. They showed it to you in a split second. You can see it moving as you're ta- as we're having a conversation, like gaining value, losing value. It's like, Oh, look, I just made this amount of money. I just lost this amount, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just not, I'm not a part of that. Um, and I think it, it, while, while it's like maddening to me and frustrating, the other like reframe of it for me is makes me think about how amazing um, the things I do. Like if I, I go home and like write a song or um, uh, write a piece of poetry and how that's not, it's actually kind of amazing that it's not contributing to these systems. It's not contributing to any sort of monetary value that like capitalism controls or dictates. It can like stand on its own outside of this. And, um, it's like having that reframe about it brings so much like joy, inspiration and, and value to me, um, in that regard. And it also makes me like appreciative for what we're doing here, what this conversation we're having and like critically thinking about this and what was so great about the book and what I thought the author did so well was these like everyday questionings of these of these moments of I'm talking to my financial advisor who I'm not like necessarily I might not be necessarily emotionally close with but I feel like I have to lie to them like what is that doing to me how how do I stop and think about like the impacts of that and the effects of that and it's great to uh, have these discussions with you all because uh, I so related to what this a lot of the things this goes through in this book um, and then I know through personal conversations with you all, we, we often share similar struggles about this economic system of capital. I, I can go off that, Danny. Yeah, I like, I like what you're saying. One thing that you're, I'm picking up what you're saying is like, so often in capitalism and, and Ulibis in that moment does this is like, she blames herself or she feels guilty. She feels like, oh, I, I, what's wrong with me? I couldn't bring it up with my investor. Or like Danny, you did it. Like 
what's like, you didn't say exactly this, but you're like, I could have brought up the book with these people. And I think the capitalism is so good at doing this, this like, uh, individualizing responsibility, especially for those who don't have power. And then we, we, yeah, we like, we put it into ourselves and it, it dampens our own ability to either fight or just, um, it, it sort of kills us. It, it like slowly kills us. And so what you're saying is like, when we can talk about this, we can make it more collective. And yeah, like when we can be vulnerable and share like, I, you know, I messed up in this way or I feel like that. And like, just saying that we can see like the roots of capitalism within these things that we blame ourselves. So I, I, I really respect that, Danny. I appreciate that. I, I will also say that like, um, thinking about this, like, can we do anything to affect capitalism as compromised as we are? Well, Eula gives us like Karl Marx, who was super compromised. Like his like wife did like all the domestic work and he got all these investments in his writing that Engels worked out. Um, and, and yet he, he did write these things that led to massive, massive revolutions and, um, change in ideology. So like as compromised as we all are, we can still always strive to do things that get us out of capitalism. Um, and I think they're happening all the time. I think capitalism is really, really good at like trying to recuperate, like, like being like a Kraken. And when something new comes, like capitalism wants to co-opt it, but I think it's always cracking. Like capitalism cracks all the time. Um, and there's new openings and, um, yeah. So I think that's also super hopeful. It's like this combination of like, it, it's a beast. I mean, it's going to be like this awful beast that we're probably going to be fighting our whole life, but we, we do find the cracks all the time. And I think we're finding some of the cracks in this conversation. Um, yeah, I, I'll pass it to Mike and cause Mike, I think you had some other like overall, maybe like on different topic type, um, um prompts for us. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, yeah, you both hit on something that I think is super important about, um, kind of like the personal responsibility like these systems are in place that are ultra, ultra, ultra predatory and they're extremely effective and it's all designed based on human neural architecture, right? Danny was talking about these guys busting out their crypto accounts on their phones and like the gamification of investing where you have this app and you're tracking it and you get so plugged into it that you check it 50 times a day and you get these little dopamine hits every time you're, value goes up and you have this kind of like fight or flight response when your value crashes. So technology companies and financial institutions are quite literally like getting us addicted to financial gambling. Uh, and Eula Biss says like investment is no bigger sin than gambling in her opinion. Um, and this is just like how our, our biology works is like, when we put something at risk and we we succeed and get some type of reward for it, it triggers the dopamine reward cascade and it gives us like these reinforcing behaviors. 
like a variable ratio reinforcement, the slot machine reinforcement pattern elicits the strongest behavior from humans or animals. So when you're picking crypto coins, you know, if you throw a hundred bucks into 10 of these different coins that no one's ever heard of, and one of them goes up 500%, you know, you start to get hooked on it. And that's what capitalism does. That's what unearned income does. When you put your money at risk and have it, you, you get financial gain from that. It just becomes kind of like a habitual pattern, whether that's investing in properties or investing in stocks or crypto coins or whatever it happens to be. And it, the important thing to note is like, this is the way the system is designed. And the people who are designing these apps and Robinhood and whatever else people are using to trade um, stocks and cryptos on their phones, like they know that. They want you to get addicted and to spend as much of your time doing this as possible because they're shaving tiny bits of money off your, your transactions or they're making interest off the money that's in your account. So it's always good to remember like whenever any app or product or service is free, you're the product. Um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, yeah, I guess that kind of ties into some of the stuff she was talking about in investment and how capitalism, once we start to see the rewards of finance capitalism, making money without doing anything, this sort of, this notion of unearned income, um, I think it just increases our, our self-interest really subtly. So we think that like by risking our money or by working hard to save up to buy a house, which is really something that you're borrowing, right? Your, your down payment is leveraged four times over at least. Um, we think that we deserve it. And, and that kind of like makes us more, less likely to, to recoil from these types of investments. And of course that happens to her as well. She's talking to the financial advisor about aggressive investing. And she says, I decided I was going to call him and tell him, uh, I didn't want to be aggressive anymore. And then she says, I thought about it and then I didn't. So, you know, even, even for her, this person that's going through this really, uh, introspective inquiry into her finances and her privilege to just relent and be like, okay, yeah, I'll let this dude, this vampire capitalist do what he wants with my money so that I can retire early. Um, so yeah, I think that'll plug us back into, uh, some of the stuff in section three, if anybody wants, has a, a little essay in there, they want us to look at. Well, I think I'm up next and I don't know um, if that's the thing that, man, I'm just like blown away by that concept of if you can't spot the product, then you are the product. And also all the gambling you brought up. Like, I, I think it was Dan who first got me into buying Ethereum back in the day. Um, you got me on that Coinbase app, Dan. Remember that? Like that was probably like six or seven years ago. And I, you were like, oh man, because I, I think at one point you were buying into Bitcoin, like right when uh, the Winklevoss twins were like making their millions of dollars. Dan Cantrick was making 
like 400 bucks. Um, but yeah, that, that not only, I, I guess that like dopamine that you're talking about is, can also really play an effect with owning a house too. Mike, I feel like there's that idea, like this whole book started like to go full circle. This whole book started with us thinking about, you know, first of all, Eula Biss is buying her house and that's why she's reflecting on it. But like we, the, the reason we decided to read this book was we had that conversation, me, you and Dan talking about me and Dan being homeowners. And there is this like, this like sense of like, Oh my God, I did it. I own this house. And like, it's a sense of security that is like a different type of dopamine reaction that I, that I get when I'm like every once in a while, because you know, I'm only been a homeowner for a few months. So it's like, wow, this is like, it feels so good to have that security. And, um, I also get emails from the bank that I bought the home from and they email me. It's, and they say how much my home is worth every month, which is like wild to me where it's like, here's the like breakdown. And apparently my home has like doubled in price since I bought it. You know what I mean? Which is like that, that, and I clicked on it every month and who knows if that's what the fuck that means. But like, I just like, when I see that email, I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to click on it and see. And then I compared last month's email and it's like, it's just numbers. You could just send me like, here's seven numbers, Dave, enjoy those. And I don't know. Um, I wasn't really building on anything, but I do know that that dopamine comes not only with the little like Ethereum bumps that happen, but also the, or the Doge coin. Man, there's some there's some really bad cryptocurrencies out there, but it's also like it's it's everything. That's like we. It's almost like it's built into our into who we are to a certain extent. Like we have we we've been raised capitalists, and we can never we can only. It's kind of like having the idea is like we can never not be capitalists. We can just be like recovering capitalists. You know what I mean? It's like sort of like a, an addiction of some, of some sort. Like you can't, you're, you know, you're always just a recovering addict of some kind. And I feel like that's what capitalism is in a lot of ways. Dave, I was thinking about when you brought up like how I, how I uh, was talking with you about cryptos a few years back. And the whole idea was I was excited about this, like, way that people could ex like exchange uh, currencies or whatever you want to call it, like have some sort of exchange that was like independent of the banking system and that it was like a way to undermine our current like economic system. And it would also like uh, spread, like it was, it could be accessible by anybody anywhere. Uh, assuming you had access to an internet connection, which isn't the case everywhere, of course. Um, but it would like open access a lot more, you know, like banks turn down people for loans all the time uh, for like demographic reasons that are racist, sexist, uh, heteronormative, all kinds of stuff. And so I thought of it as this like, oh, maybe this could be like a revolution that changes things. And it has totally like with the gamification with the like uh, billionaires that hopped on board and like kind of took control of things. Um, and then the way these 
now like mutual fund millionaires and stuff have also um, taken it. It's totally changed and become this thing that is like, I mean, I actually can't even say that with full confidence because I don't, I don't really understand or know these things that well. I just like had, had like examined it a little ways back and thought of it as this, this great thing. But when I start to see like, Oh, Elon Musk, uh, crashed Dogecoin today. It's like, okay, well, so much for that, you know, but it's also, I, I love this. I love Bob's phrase of cracks and, and capitalism all the time. And just like looking for those, looking for those ways and looking for those, those things. So I find a lot of, uh, hope in that. And I'm going to, that's going to be like my, my, uh, observation for the next couple of weeks, like look for the cracks and, and label them and attune to them and be attentive when they happen. Um, as a way to like, uh, like better understand it and then be able to, you know, like discuss it and call it out and call it in with others when it's happening. I really like that. Dan message me when you, when you find a crack. Um, yeah. And Dave, I love what you said about we're all recovering capitalists based on what Mike was saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're just like dripping with it, you know, just being socialized for our whole lives. And in, in this, like, like what Mike said is really powerful. Like the capitalists use our, they use a lot of research on human psychology to like get us deeper and deeper entwined in their, 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 their games. Um, so I'm, just like looking at time and I think we have about like about 10 more minutes. So maybe like one or two comments each. And I, I, I don't know where to get this in, but I wanted to get this in. This is in the notes. Um, and I, you know, one reason I was like excited to read this book is because Claudia Rankin recommended it and she does such great work on race and whiteness. And so, and I, I, you know, like Eula Biss is names her white positionality throughout the book, but sometimes it like fades away or, and then I think that's exactly how whiteness operates so often. Um, but I just thought the note on whiteness at the end was very useful and just a reminder for our readers. Um, so she says, my pursuit of the meaning of capitalism in this book was motivated in part by the whiteness of the whale, which is a nice little Melville reference there. Ever since the term white people was first used in the, late 17th century in the colonies that would become the United States. That distinction has served to exclude other people from security ownership and prop and profit from their own work. And then she goes on in the last sentence of this section says, um, my evidence suggests that the stories we tell ourselves about money are full of white lies, not harmless, but white. Um, and so I do think like, her writing does evoke that. Um, and I think that's part of the power of her work. Um, so I'll say that. And then I also want to try to get us to a point where we can talk about the last chapter of the book, um, where she's digging a tree or digging a hole for a tree. Um, I've read that chapter a few times now. I find it very powerful, very like, like, I don't know if I have the right meaning of it. And I wanted to see, how you all felt about that chapter. While I was reading the book, I read that chapter. I was like, wow, this is a powerful chapter. And then I went on to the next page and like, oh, that's the end of the book. Um, so it doesn't like, 
it's not like, you know, this is the end of the book. It, it just seems like a great chapter or it did to me. Um, part of the reason I am into that chapter too, is she is digging that hole on her 40th birthday and Mike and I are 40. Dave and Dan will soon be 40. Um, so yeah, I, as you all like, um, make some of your final comments. I want you to think about that chapter too. And if you want to comment on that chapter. Yeah. I, I think I made a note to, to dig into that chapter a little bit as well. And I think, yeah, so I, I turned 40 a few days after defending my MFA thesis and, um, you know, felt like, I don't know, I was on like a pretty good trajectory. It was like a really celebratory weekend. Um, and then since I've graduated, I have essentially been buying myself time. And this is a thing that she talks about quite a bit throughout the book in the context of getting like all these, uh, she got money from Guggenheim to write this book. Um, and she had to pay her university so that she wouldn't have to teach buying out her, her contract essentially. And yeah, when she, she talks about in that chapter, like hitting 40, you get to this point where it's like, I just want to buy my time back. I just want to escape from this kind of treadmill. And yeah, I, I mean, I definitely feel that too. Like, I'm there, there are more important things than, than work. There are more important things than uh, your investment portfolio. Uh, there are more important things than looking ahead to retirement. Um, I'll, I'll throw it back to one section a little bit earlier in the book where she's talking about. Um, people who choose a life of precarity. Uh, she writes, some people choose their precarity, evidence that precarity is not just a condition of our time, but a response to it. The precariat includes people who have foregone stable employment and retirement savings, her temp work and travel and an uncertain future. Their very existence is unsettling, suggesting as it does, that there might be something worth more than security. And I, I've, I've felt that my entire life and I've lived that for a very long time. And to finally be in a position where like, I'm no longer experiencing that precarity. Um, I'm definitely feeling the role of like being a class trader and like using my art to completely subvert all of these systems that allow me to be comfortable right now. Um, so yeah, that's something that I hope I can kind of cling to and keep reminding myself of, uh, Peter Singer has suggested that donating all of your salary above a certain point is like the only ethical response <laughs> to a capitalist world. Um, I don't know if I'm, you know, I don't have any stable income at the moment, so uh, I'm not there, but I'll continue to try to find ways to use my resources and privilege to, to undermine this system. So I think that's what her, her last chapter is about. It's like getting her, her time to herself. She said, tells her neighbor, she doesn't dig for anyone else. She digs for herself. And she's just sitting there in the mud, in the rain, digging her own grave in a manner of speaking. 
And I think it's a great allegory for the writing life of a professor who's also feels very precarious in her work. Yeah, it does have that sense of digging a grave. Um, but I don't think that's explicit, right? Oh, lost Bob, but that's okay. Maybe he'll come back. Um, I think there's also the idea of the financial hole, right? Like if you're in a financial hole, like that's where a lot of people spend a lot of their time digging money or digging. Uh, but I don't think that's exactly what it means. And I remember it's like a, it's like a form of protest, right? But that's why she digs a hole, like to be awake. Well, it looks like we lost some of the audio, but I wasn't really going anywhere too important. Just digging a hole. We're just getting deeper and deeper. Um, so I'll pass my closing thoughts over to Dan so he can save us. That's what we determined. <laughs> you got us, Dan? Uh, yeah, we'll go for it. Okay, so we're talking about like digging a grave. Yes, uh, when I read this, okay, so the last line is kind of like this. Well, I'll read it. She goes, now I'm in the hole I dug myself, I think, with amusement. It feels like an accomplishment. And you kind of read that like, oh, is that sarcastic that it feels like an accomplishment? But there's also a part of it, there's also a part of me that reads it as like that's a very genuine feeling. And for like, I, I'd say it's probably on two fronts, or the way I interpreted it was on two fronts. One is this this like act of doing something, laboring over something, working, having something tangible to uh, represent that after all these like musing ex and examinations of things that aren't that. They're the opposite of that. They're not something she can just put her finger on and label as a whole and be standing in it, to, like be a part of it, um, to be with the whole. Um, and at the same time, I think, I think when she says, I've, I've now dug my, I'm now in the hole I dug myself. That to me, I thought of is the book is the whole, the whole examination of the book. Like when you're interpreting and, and critiquing capitalism, it leads you down this, uh, leads you down this path that can feel like you're just going deeper into the hole. You're getting, you're finding out more, you're uncovering more layers, you're peeling back the onion. It just leads to more and more layers possibly of confusion. But the act of doing that is the accomplishment, whether you get to a decisive conclusion or not, or you gain some answers, or you just feel more buried than when you started. Somehow that's something to be proud of. And that's something that we can like, we can take away from. I mean, to me, like everything, everything we've talked about um, in our conversations are like these reckonings of our day-to-day -day interactions with this system that seems um, so hard to work within. Yet, there's still a lot of optimism from all of us. And we've all suggested ways we're going to um, push back and um, not like, the, we, we may just be making the hole deeper and we may be inside of it, but like we're not, our grave isn't covered yet. We, we don't have the dirt on top of us yet. Um, so I think that's like, 
that's how I read it. And I read it, read it as an, it's an accomplishment just to do the examination and ask these questions and go down that path because so often we're not, and it's just happening to us. Um, but digging the hole is you doing something, um, no matter the outcome, there's like some great feat in the act. That's the way I interpreted it. And I like that, Dan. I would agree with that and felt it too, because she, uh, both her neighbor and the person who sells her the tree are like, no, you don't want to, you don't want to dig this hole. And she's like, I'm digging this hole. Damn it. Like this is my hole to dig. And so I, I do think there's a lot of agency in that last chapter. Um, and she talks about how hard it is. So like she's feeling it. Um, so I do think she's honest when she says it feels like an accomplishment. And I want to believe that it's also like she is digging it for that tree and that the tree has meaning too. Um, I'm not sure if I'm like projecting too much into that chapter, but the tree is also a nice metaphor, at least in terms of like growth and, you know, doing something when we're gone. Like, cause I do think another theme of the book is like, what are we, what are we left with? What do we leave the world? Um, and in, in that sense, maybe she's leaving the world with the tree. Um, and yeah, that, that, yeah, that I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that it is a tree that she's digging, um, a hole for. So and that's, that gives me some hope there. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I think she's brilliant. And the whole book, she's the, like the tone of the book is it's hard to pin down. Like, is, is she like hopeful or is she like, does she have no hope left? Um, and I think it, it goes back and forth. Um, and it certainly does in that last chapter. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I laid out all my elder wisdom for the most part. Um, I guess one of the things that, that I kept thinking about with this book is like, who is this book written for? Um, because I think a lot of us, I mean, all of us had like such strong resonance with some of the things that she was saying and the experiences she's going through. But all of us have read Marx. All of us are, you know, aware of critical theory and the ins and outs of capitalism. Uh, so I think that this would be a fantastic read for anyone who's like relatively well off, um, questioning their privilege. Uh, and doesn't necessarily have have a strong connection to Marxist economics or capitalism. I think that this book could be really groundbreaking for people encountering it on those terms. And uh, yeah, I would highly recommend it as like a entertaining and or a insightful primer on capitalism. I guess I had one final thought that popped into my head and it's the idea that the first job that me and Bob ever got hired to do when we were kids was to dig a hole in our neighbor's backyard to plant a tree. And we got totally scammed. She gave us a bag of quarters and she like shorted us like $15. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, so that it was a real introduction to capitalism for us. You remember that, Bob? Oh, uh, I'll never forget it. Yeah, I'm still burning <laughs> with anger from that experience. <laughs> So sometimes digging a hole can be a good agency and sometimes it can just really make you bitter with capitalism. So true. Great, great, great memory, Dave. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, we'll see you next week on Thriving. And uh, thanks, Dan and Bish, for being here and recording with us. Yeah. Great to have the poets with us. Yes. Yeah, it's been fun. Somebody pick a new book for us. What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. The outro song to season 8 is Captain Jack by Kimaru Crew. Thanks for listening. Des sauvages fabriquent un radeau Un jour voyant trop large ce qu'ils croyaient un bateau On le prit à bord et en fit un pirate Commençant la légende de Jack Captain Jack, Captain Jack Est arrivé de loin Aujourd'hui encore on chante le refrain Du pirate à